Well, good morning. It's good to have you all here. Um, you know, for some time, those outside the faith, those who are not believers in Christ, have spoken of an idea or a preference that they see as invading our culture known as Christian privilege. The argument is that our nation operates with a preference towards Christianity. All right, uh, It favors Christianity over and above all other uh, belief systems, all other religions. W.J. Blumenfeld, in an article in Equity and Excellence in Education, wrote that Christian privilege is the overarching system of advantages bestowed on Christians. It is the intent... I'm sorry, institutionalization of a Christian norm or standard that establishes and perpetuates the notion that all people are or should be Christian. The privileging of Christians and Christianity excludes the needs, concerns, religious cultural practices, and life experiences of people who are not Christian. At times overt and at other times subtle, Christian privilege is oppression by purpose and design, as well as by neglect, omission, erasure, and distortion. That was written in 2006. Proponents of the idea of Christian privilege argue that Christians receive preferential treatment in areas such as politics or public schools or entertainment or culture and have the benefit of majority rule. Now, I'm not here this morning to argue that idea. I don't agree with it, but that's not my purpose in arguing this this political idea of those holding to this perspective. That's not what this sermon's about. But I do think that if we listen to them, we would hear examples in which that is true. Okay? That's the thing about criticism. It may be off in a lot of capacities, but there's always some nugget of truth, and we would do well to listen to it. But again, it's, it's not my purpose, it's not my place to argue about this idea of Christian privilege, but really to contemplate how the attitudes of those who profess Christ can be perceived by those outside the Christian faith and actually lead them towards this conclusion. I wonder how many of our arrogant attitudes about our position, how, how, how much our vain pursuits of the privileges that come with faith in Christ, how often our self-exalting, self-centered actions have actually fueled and aided this idea, this wrong conclusion. How have we, in our self-centered pursuit of Christ, actually excluded the needs and concerns and practices and beliefs and just um, life experiences of other people? How have we intentionally or unintentionally been cruel to others by neglect, by omission, by erasure, and by distortion? Now again, I, I don't agree with Blumenfeld on this, but... Maybe we have inadvertently held to the idea of Christian privilege by appearing holier than thou. Or by being so callous and careless towards the suffering of those around us rather than showing compassion. Or by condemning them rather than pointing them to Jesus. Maybe... We do think we are privileged, and we seek to exalt ourselves over others. For some, or or maybe for all of us, maybe Christianity is a means of seeking privilege in this world. Maybe the idea of Christian privilege might be changed 
if we would truly love and serve as Christ served. You see, we often take this worldly path in our pursuit of Christ. We can selfishly and neglectfully run over others in an attempt to gain favor with God. Or we can try to use Christ to gain worldly privilege rather than recognizing that the true Christian privilege is that we have this opportunity and this responsibility to serve and to proclaim and to reflect the truth and beauty of Jesus Christ to others. You see, there's a difference between worldly privilege and Christian privilege. And the dividing line between the two is the way of Christ. So please turn with me to Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. It should be page 846, maybe 847 in the Bibles there in the chairs. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 35. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now I have two points to this sermon. Worldly privilege and Christian privilege, okay? But before I can talk about them, I need to give a bit of a scriptural introduction to this passage. You see, is this is one of those passages in the Bible where the exegetical main point of the text is different than the main theological point of the text. And what so often happens is when we come to texts like this, we'll jump on one or the other to the neglect of one or the other. So I have to deal with both. I'm actually going to preach two sermons on this text. Well, actually, I'm going to preach a sermon next week on just verse 45 to cover it. The main exegetical point that we find here deals with the idea of greatness and service about those who would be disciples of Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about this week, okay? But though this is the main point of the text, this is actually secondary in comparison to the main theological point which is found in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay? Those, those two first words kind of give away that this is a supporting statement, but this statement is central to our understanding of Mark as a whole. This is one of the, the big, big main themes, okay? So, so the main theological point is not about our service, but actually Christ's service to us. And so I have to deal with that next week. Because you see, 
Christ's service to us is the basis. It's the very reason for our service at all. And if we don't get that, we focus just on the imperative that we need to humbly serve without grounding it, without founding it in Christ's perfect service to us, then we're missing the point entirely. Then it becomes works-based. Then I'm not doing fairness and justice to this text. I'm actually teaching you the wrong thing if I don't properly focus on verse 45. Okay, So that's why I'm doing two sermons on this. We're focusing on the imperative here about what it means for us to serve, but we can't remove that from Christ's perfect service to us, which is verse 45, and we'll cover that next week. Okay, So, yeah, where do we go from here? How should we think about serving and its relationship to gaining privilege? One way is to try to use our service to gain position, to gain stature, to gain favor in the eyes of God or in others. This is the worldly concept of privilege, where we use our service as a means of gaining something more. Okay. The other side, Christian privilege says, no, it's not about that. Because we have freedom in Christ. Who I am in Christ, the glory that I have already received in Him is perfect. And so it's not about gaining glory. It's rather about giving out of that perfect stature, that perfect position, that perfect privilege that I have already received in Christ. I'm now freed up to give freely without any expectation of gain, any expectation of glory. It doesn't matter anymore. That's the Christian privilege. And that's the direction that we're going. Okay? So first, we need to look at where we see worldly privilege in our context. So here in our passage, we have an instance in which James and John are seeking worldly privilege. They're coming to Jesus, right? And they're making a request. They want to gain from their standing in Christ. We know from from last week, from verses 32 through 34, that Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. They're on their way towards Jesus being delivered over, to Jesus being condemned, to Jesus being mocked and ridiculed, and beaten, and executed. They're on their way to Jesus' death. And they recognize that this is a solemn and serious time. The time is actually very short for them. Jesus has predicted that he's going to die. So what are they going to do? James and John begin to think of themselves, uh, about this themselves, and they decide, you know what? We need to take care of a little business here. We need to get all of our, uh, our, our, our ducks in a row. You know, we've got to get things lined out here. So James and John, they actually have a very privileged position in comparison with the other disciples. They, along with Peter, form this inner three, this special circle that had just unique relationship with Jesus. And we've seen that throughout Mark. I mean, Mark chapter 5, we see that... <clears throat> that Jesus tells his disciples that they need to stay outside, but he takes Peter, James, and John in with him into Jairus' house, and they get to witness Jesus raise this little girl to life. Or in chapter 9, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him up to the mountain, right, where he's transfigured before their eyes, and they tremble in fear as they see Jesus in his pre-existent glory, speaking with Elijah and with Moses about his, his, soon, his exodus, his coming departure, 
Right? They get to see this. They alone are trembling in fear before Jesus. And when Jesus heads down the mountain with them, he says, Hey, listen, don't tell anybody about this until after I'm raised from the dead. They alone have this information. It was James and John, along with Peter and Andrew, who sat with Jesus on the mountain of olives. And was there in Mark chapter 13 as Jesus told them about the close of the age and about his second coming. And it was Peter, James, and John in chapter 14 who accompanied Jesus a little farther in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray for him as he was greatly distressed and troubled because of his imminent betrayal and death. Of course, they didn't really pray. They fell asleep, right? But nevertheless, they had a privileged position before Christ. They were ahead of at least nine of the disciples, and they knew it. And so they used that privileged position to try to advance themselves. They came to Jesus and they said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Okay, you know just in the request that this is not a good thing, right? I mean, you know when somebody comes to you and says, Hey, promise me you'll say yes, and then I'll tell you what it is. You know that this is not going well. I'm, I, I get pictures of like a teenage girl like running up to her daddy and saying, please say yes, please say yes, please say yes, please say yes. Give me what I want. Give me what I want. And then he's like, uh, you know, the dad is automatically thinking, man, this is going to cost me, right? This is going to, I'm like, we're talking second mortgage or coronary, right? This is what we're talking about. This is not going to go well. He's going to be spending time at the bank or he's going to be spending extra hours at work trying to pay off the debt or, or he's going to spend time at the hospital recovering from a heart attack, right? Or, or, you know, or he's going to spend time in prison because he's killed somebody over what she's about to ask. That's what's going to happen, right? I mean, it's not going to go well. That's, that's the sort of thing that happens when you're approached like that. I mean, this guy, you know, this father, he's, he's getting another car payment, right? He's getting a, a pony that nobody rides that he has to feed. He's, he's going to end up with a son-in-law, right? Or he's going to end up having to chase her into some dangerous area because she just had to go and he's got to go rescue her, right? This is not going to be good. He's got nervous tics from this. I mean, you can imagine what it's like. And it's no different with the request of James and John. That idea is no different. They've already proven that they are following Christ, at least in part, in order to gain for themselves. So back in chapter 1, right, in verse 35, Jesus is up on the mountain praying. Everybody wakes up, you know, because it's like super early, Jesus is being all spiritual, nobody knows where he is, and this huge crowd's gathered together, and the disciples are like, yeah, man, we're cool, we got to go find Jesus and get him to come back down to these people because, hey, we're in the limelight here, this is awesome. We've seen in chapter 9, verse 34, that they have just beheld the pre-existent glory of Christ. They have trembled in fear before him as he spoke with Elijah and Moses. And then no sooner do they come down the mountain that they start arguing with the others about who's the greatest. And then even four verses later in chapter 9, verse 38, you've got John coming up to Jesus with this request saying, Hey, hey Jesus, there's this guy. I don't know him, but he is casting out demons in your name. And we told him to be quiet because he wasn't following us, which really means he wasn't following me. He didn't recognize my authority. He didn't recognize who I was. He kept doing it anyway. And Jesus politely said, Hey, you're silly. Uh, you know, but... There's a, there's a track record there, isn't it? You see it. There's a, there's a huge track record that they are seeking their own glory. They are trying to gain 
their own privilege, the way the world gains privilege. And so here they are saying, hey, Jesus, before we tell you what it is, hey, just, just promise us you'll give us what we want. <laughs> it's amazing. You can tell immediately who this is about. That This is not about Christ. This is not about other people. This is about them and their worldly sense of privilege. Jesus doesn't promise them anything, but asks them what they want. And in verse 37, they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Okay, now this is them seeking glory. They're wanting power. They want privilege for themselves. Because right and left, being at the right and left of Jesus in his glory means that you are first. Right? You're the first to receive all the benefits and the blessings that come with Jesus' glory. You're the first one that people go to, right? You're empowered. You're second in command. You want this position for yourself because it, with it comes all the riches, all the benefits, all the blessings of being with Jesus. Now, they may have been willing to sacrifice themselves. They may have actually said, you know what? We're willing to follow you in your suffering and death if, if, if that, that's what it means, but we just want to make sure that our risk is going to pay out. We want to make sure that it's worth it. That my sacrifice is really going to end up advancing me. That's what I want. They selfishly wanted to be first in His glory. It's not enough for them just to be in with Jesus in His glory. They wanted to be first. They're pursuing privilege as the world pursues privilege. Selfishly seeking glory, power, and riches, and fame. And they're bartering with Jesus to try to get it. In addition to the selfish request of glory and their pursuit of worldly privilege is also seen in their foolishness. In verse 38, Jesus responds to the question, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know the consequences of this. And then he says this kind of weird thing. We don't really get it. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? which really rolls off the tongue, by the way. Um, and, uh, yeah, and they're like, yeah, yeah, we can do that. No problem. I got it. You know? Of course, Jesus says, yeah, you're going to do that. But it's not what they expect. They don't know what they're asking for. They don't know the consequences of their actions. They don't know the implications of this request. I mean, they're blind as to the true meaning of this. Are you able to drink the cup of God's wrath? that is poured out for sin? Are you really going to drink that? This baptism with which I am baptized, are you going to be baptized into suffering, into a fearful death, under the judgment of God? No. They can't. Can they? Only Jesus can do that. They can't do it. But what do they say? Yeah, no problem. I can do it. I'll do it right now. Let me show you. Right? (laughs) No, this is foolishness. They are ignorant of Jesus' true meaning. When Jesus says cup, they're probably thinking about the cup of God's blessing. Right? There are three times in the Old Testament, all in the Psalms, Psalm 16, Psalm 23, Psalm 116, that talk about drinking the cup of God's blessing. Right? We're all going for that. Yeah, bring it on. I'll do that right now. I'll, I'll chug it. Right? Let's do it. Let's drink this thing. Right? And so, but more often than not, in fact, over 20 times in the Old and New Testament, when it talks about drinking the cup, it's talking about God's wrath against sin. 
God's judgment. Right? This is talking about suffering and hardship. And given our context in Mark, we know that Jesus has just predicted his suffering and death. And in verse 45, he's talking about giving his life as a ransom. So clearly this is not a cup of blessing. This is a cup of wrath. The baptism that James and John are probably thinking about is this baptism of repentance for forgiveness and purification, an act that they've already done. In fact, they've been baptizing others according to John chapter 3. So they're like, yeah, dude, I've done that. I'm there. I'm with you, Jesus. You, you mean everybody else? We've been baptized by John. We're, we're on it. We're ready. Let's go. But the baptism that Jesus is talking about is being submerged, being overwhelmed by a fearful death to bear the judgment of God. You see, they don't know what they're saying. They don't. They cannot comprehend the consequences. They cannot fully drink the cup and share in the baptism of Jesus because they are not a perfect sacrifice for sin. There's only one who is, and that is Christ. He alone can satisfy the wrath and judgment of God. Yet Jesus says to them, amazingly, in verses 39 and 40, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not, it's not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Though it's not Jesus' position to grant their request, to give them the privilege that they're longing for, this right and left seat, it is Jesus' ability to grant them to share in his sufferings and death. They do this first spiritually through his vicarious death on their behalf. Spiritually, they are united with Christ. They share in a death like his so they might receive a resurrection that is like his. But they also are going to do it physically. They will physically share in Jesus' suffering and death. Do you guys realize that by the time that Mark wrote this gospel, that James had already been martyred for his faith in Christ? He was already dead. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we learn that the pseudo-king of the Jews, Herod, had gone after James along with those who belonged to the church in Jerusalem. He had captured them and he had killed James with a sword. James is dead. John, if not already, will soon be exiled, condemned, delivered over to spend the rest of his days on an island, the island of Patmos. You can read about that in Revelation 1. So they will share in Jesus' cup and in Jesus' baptism. Not in the way they expect. They're not able to do it in the way that they think that they're able to, but they will do it nonetheless. Both spiritually and physically. They will share in the sufferings and death of Christ. But James and John were not the only ones who wanted to use Christ to gain worldly privilege. In verse 41, it says that when the ten heard it, they began to become indignant at James and John. They were mad. They were angry. They were jealous of what James and John were doing because they wanted the same thing for themselves. Remember, they were arguing over who was the greatest. They're all fighting for position. They just didn't have the gall to go up and ask Jesus for it. That's the only difference between James and John and the other ten. Right? They were the only ones with the audacity 
But the only ones who are brave enough are, are dumb enough to go up and do it. I mean, Peter, I mean, he's proven that he's a, he's a great example, right? Over and over again. I called Satan, right? I mean, just, you know that this is not good. Now, as just a, a brief aside, I think that this is one of the many uh, instances that points to the historic reliability of the Gospel of Mark. I mean, think about it. If, if, if this was all a concocted story, if Jesus was just made up, if Jesus wasn't really Son of God, and these people are trying to exalt themselves and build themselves up, why would they present themselves as hard-hearted, idiotic, selfish, just downright stupid people? Right? I mean, if, you're, if you are the leaders of a new movement that you want to gain stature and you want to exalt yourself as the rulers over whatever this is, you don't portray yourself like this, like some power-hungry sinner, right? Totally selfish, totally ignorant, not getting it, having to be just rebuked over and over and over again. That's not how you present it, unless it's the truth. And they're just giving a humble, honest account of what really happened. Yeah, this is really my time with Jesus. I screwed up a ton. A ton. Jesus just called me Satan. That ain't good. I don't want you to call me Satan. Right? It's bad. Now, James and John are selfishly asked for the glory. Um, and the others became jealous and indignant because they too wanted it. Okay. So what does this have to do with us and our pursuit of worldly privilege? Well, you see, sometimes our pursuit of Christ doesn't actually look that much different than the world. We can use Christ to seek privilege in the same way that the world uses means to seek privilege on its own terms. This passage identifies ways that we can use Christ to our own ends. I mean, first, we can see it in James and John's request, right? Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Hey, Jesus, I want you to give me what I want. You promise to give me what I want, and then I'll tell you what it is. And we do this all the time. We're silly things like, Jesus, I... Yeah, I'll follow you if, uh, if I can get that girl's number. Jesus, I, I really want this job. Jesus, I want my life to be comfortable and easy, and I, I want to know that things are going to work out for me in the way that I want them to work out for me. We do this all the time. We do the same thing that James and John are doing. How many times do you come to Christ and you say, Jesus, give me what I want. You give me what I want. Or you serve him just enough so that you feel like you've got something on Jesus and he's now obligated to give you what you want. All right, that's called bartering, where you're trading your service for what you really want, right? James and John were following Christ in order to pursue their own ends. They were using him to get what they really wanted. And you know what? What they really wanted wasn't Jesus. At least not at that point. How have you been using Christ? How have you been demanding that the Lord give you what you want? Second, we can identify worldly privilege when the goal is to gain glory, power, and position for ourselves. That we are selfishly seeking our own gain. I mean, have you, 
Have you sought to exalt yourself as the spiritual one in the group? Like you want to surround yourself with people so that you seem like the guy, right? Or maybe you try to always be the center or always take the limelight, right? Or you strive to be noticed or are you happy to go relatively unnoticed? Do you gravitate towards those upfront positions? Try to surround yourself with others that will make you look good and you want to Remove yourself from anyone that might be a burden or might have somehow affect your reputation. Do you neglect areas of need or other people because you want to teach or you want to lead or you want the spotlight, but you don't want to love or serve? Hey man, I'm happy to lead a community group at your church, but don't ask me to clean the toilet or to get here early and set up chairs. Or heaven forbid work in the children's ministry. I don't want that. I'll do this, but not this. Rather than laboring to build others up, you actually seek to exalt yourself. Or maybe, maybe you foolishly think that you are capable. You trust in your own abilities. You act without thinking. You neglect to weigh the consequences, especially in light of eternity. Right? You ignorantly give no thought to how your actions can either commend or bring reproach upon the name of Jesus Christ. And so you treat obedience as optional, right? Like, you know, you, I, I, I don't realize that, that my disobedience actually mars the image of Christ and that my obedience actually commends and extols it. And so it's for the glory of Christ that I want to do these things rather than for myself. His glory doesn't even factor into the equation because it's all about you. Or maybe, maybe you get angry and jealous at the success of others. This one will get you. I mean, one of the telltale signs of using Christ to seek worldly privilege is when you get angry or jealous of how God is blessing someone else. Get in a room like, few days ago, get in a room with a bunch of church planners, and you're all just kind of like, hmm, what do they got going on? What do they got going on? What, what, what's, why do these guys have 103 in their, in their outreach program to this, this community? I'm like, they're, they're dumb. You know, like, we do things like that. I mean, happened to me this week. James says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Ultimately, we can identify when we are using Christ to gain worldly privilege, when the center, when the goal, when the outcome is all about us. It's about you and your passions and to hell with everything else. Christian privilege is not about you. It's not about your rights. It's not about your wants. It's not about your preferences. It's not about your desires. It's not about you. So what's it about then? Instead of using Christ to gain worldly privilege, we must seek to fulfill our Christian privilege. Friends, Christian privilege is not power or authority or glory for ourselves. 
It's not about fulfilling our desires or our wishes or our dreams. It has nothing to do with you at all. Christian privilege is serving as Christ served. It's about reflecting Christ and His glory. Look at Jesus' example of serving others. In verse 36, Jesus didn't ask them, hey, what do you want? What do you want? I don't have time for this. What do you want? Instead, he asks, what do you want me to do for you? Like Even in his question, you can get an idea of Jesus' servant heart that he's willing to act on their behalf, even though he knows that these are selfish guys that don't even know what they're asking. In verses 38 through 40, we see Jesus' patience in teaching his disciples. I mean, despite their selfish glory-seeking, their foolishness, their anger and jealousy, Jesus patiently instructs them. Jesus is the one who will drink the cup of God's wrath and suffer the baptism of judgment so that they might have forgiveness. And he can do this because you can't add glory to Jesus. He's completely free from the vain pursuits of worldly glory. And so he can give himself freely. In verse 40, we see that Jesus' submission to his Father, he's assenting to his role in the Trinity when he says, to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. God already knows what this is. The Father has set this forth. And I, as the Son, the Eternal Son, am going to submit to my Father's will. You see humility and service there. But ultimately, Jesus calls us to follow his example because though he is the greatest, he became servant of all. And though he is first, yet he became a slave to all. And that's why he says in verse 45, For even I, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Friends, the reason that we serve is because Jesus served. That's why we serve. You know, Christianity was about using Christ to gain privilege. The way that the world gains privilege, then Jesus would have come to be served. He would have come exalting himself as the Lord and ruler of all that he is. But he didn't. Instead, he served by totally sacrificing himself for others. You see, Jesus actually redefines the entire concept of privilege. We can no longer look at that and understand privilege in worldly terms of power and glory and position and authority. Instead, Christian privilege is found in the freedom to serve and to sacrifice for others. The Christian privilege is that we get to reflect the the humility and the service that Jesus has shown to us in our service when it is not focused on us or our gain. It reflects the gospel. It reflects the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. I mean, let's think about what Jesus says about discipleship in Mark. In chapter 1, verse 20, he says, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Well, who's leading there? Jesus. Who's following? His disciples. Who's accomplishing the goal? Jesus is making them become fishers of men. And who are the disciples serving? Other men, right? They will become fishers of men for Christ, not for themselves. 
Fast forward to chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. And Jesus called to him the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would desire to save his life will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake and for the gospel's sake, you will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? And what would man give in exchange for his soul? It's just nothing. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. How does one follow Christ? By denying himself and taking up his cross and following Jesus. How does one save his life? By losing it for Christ's sake and for the gospel's sake. What profit is worldly privilege in light of eternity? It's of no value. Whose glory is the whole thing about? Christ's glory. We're in chapter 9, verses 35 through 37. The disciples have been arguing about who is the greatest, and Jesus said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives such a ch- one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. The Christian privilege is to be last of all and servant of all. We don't receive Christ by seeking our own glory, but by receiving the meek and the helpless. It's by giving. And here in verse 42, Jesus says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. I think it's interesting that he says, who are considered rulers. He says that because they are under an ultimate authority. Right? Theirs is a derived authority. But Christians don't pursue Christ as a means of gaining worldly privilege so that they can rule and exercise authority over others. That's not what it's about, of trying to... to just kind of move up in the hierarchy and establish ourselves as glorious beings before others so that they can worship us rather than worshiping Christ. No. We live as servants of Christ and of His church. That's what it's about. Even the position of elders. Guys, I hope you recognize it's not about us, but it's about you. We don't do this perfectly, but we strive. To, to live, to exalt Christ and to serve you guys by our faithful teaching and preaching and leading. Right? We recognize that our authority is a derived authority. It is not mine. This is Christ's church. It's not Chet's church. Right? It is governed and dictated not by Chet's opinion or Jim's decision or Caleb's opinion, but by the word of Christ. And that's why we have to be careful to make sure that every act, every opinion, every decision is conformed to Christ's word. Now, we don't do this perfectly. We don't. We're trying. And you can pray for us because we need it. We do. But we want to serve Christ as we are serving you. This is a servant position. This is a laying down of our wills in order to serve other people. This is not about taking glory because we stand on a stage and talk for a long time.
Jesus continues in verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. To be great is to be a servant. Right? To be first is to be a slave of all. The most privileged position in Christianity is a servant. That is the exalted position. And the one who did this perfectly, the one who is actually a servant of all and a slave of all, who made himself last of all, is the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. He alone did it. Friends, our privilege as followers of Christ is to reflect that same service and sacrifice to others. As it says in 1 John 3.16, not John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Friends, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' selfless sacrifice, his service in paying the penalty that our sins deserve, frees us from this trapping of vain, empty pursuit of worldly privilege. We no longer need to selfishly pursue our glory for ourselves because all of those who have repented of their sins and believe and are following after Jesus have already received his glory. Because you get this. You will not be more glorious than you already are in Christ. All your worldly pursuits mean nothing. You have it all. And because you have it all, you can freely give. It doesn't change anything. Jesus says, hey, guess what? Peter, you're a sinner, right? You're imperfect. You're not going to get any better. Now serve me. Not to gain my approval, but because you have my approval. I'm going to complete my work. You don't have to worry about it. So now serve, give, love, reflect me, bring glory to my name because you, you're, you're glorified. It's amazing. And we don't get this. But instead we continue to put ourselves back under this stupid, foolish pursuit of trying to gain glory for ourselves. And it kills us. And it kills the people around us. And we get no further. We no longer have to fight for glory. We have now been freed from the selfish pursuit of glory so that we might serve others. Galatians 5, 13-14 says it this way. For you are called to freedom, brothers. That is freedom from trying to earn your salvation by means of worldly privilege. That's what he means when he says freedom. You, you, have been, you are called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, which is falling back under seeking worldly privilege. But through love serve one another. For the whole law has been fulfilled in one word, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The reason we can now serve, the reason that we can now love, is because Jesus loved and served us by giving his life as a ransom for many. His service enables us to serve. You guys see that? Are you getting that? Now look at the direction of our service. Verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So do we serve Christ? According to this, no. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. He came to serve us. 
And the result of his service to us is that we are now have the freedom, according to Galatians 5, to serve one another. Okay? We tend to think that Christianity is about serving Christ and that we serve Christ when we do things like go to church and sing songs and, and give and try to abide by the law and do Christianly things, whatever those might be, that we're serving Christ in that way, right? If I do this and this and this, then I'm serving Christ. But how often? Well, let me ask you this. This morning, as you sat here or stood here and you sang songs, were you serving the person next to you? Did they enter into your mind at all? According to Galatians 5, they should have. But so often they didn't. They don't. It's about me. It's about myself. It's about how I feel. It's about how I sing. It's about what I do. And we're neglecting everyone else around us. But here's the thing about our Christian privilege to serve. We serve Christ by serving others. Did you get that? We don't serve Christ when we don't serve others in His name. I'm going to say that one more time. I want to be really clear with you. We serve Christ by serving others. We don't serve Christ when we don't serve others in His name. So let's not fool ourselves. If we're here thinking that we're serving Christ, but we're not serving one another, then we're not serving Christ. We're serving ourselves. That's what we're doing in that moment. We're seeking worldly privilege. When it comes, we're we're focused on the self-sacrificial service of Christ on our behalf, then it frees us to stop looking at ourselves, stop focusing on ourselves, and begin to look at other people. And suddenly, I'm here not for me, I'm here for you. I want to be about you. I want to care about you. I want to love you. You matter to me because you matter to Christ. Christ has freed me so that I can love you. And I want to do that. It changes everything. At that point, we fulfill our Christian privilege to reflect the selfless sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. When we understand that Jesus died for our sin, for the sin of our selfish pursuit of worldly privilege, then we are free to love and serve one another without any expectation of gain or glory. I don't care if you pat me on the back. That's not what it's about. But I care very much that you're growing. I care very much that you see Jesus more clearly and that you love him more. We don't seek glory. We give, we love, we serve because we have already received glory in Christ. We sang that this morning. We love because he loved, right? That's what we do. So let me ask you, how are you doing? How are you doing at this? Do you give any thought to that person that's two rows away from you? Do you even know his or her name? Did you come here about you? Are you spending your life serving Christ by serving others, or did you come here to serve yourself? Do you see serving and loving others as a burden, or as the privilege that it really is? Guys, we get this opportunity to love and serve others because we've been loved and served by Christ. You think that you are actually serving Christ when all the while you're neglecting your neighbor? 
Friends, the Christian privilege is to serve as Christ served. He has freed us. And the watching world like W.J. Blumenfeld looks at that when we actually serve one another selflessly and they can't explain it. And I can't help but think of this idea of Christian privilege would be changed dramatically if we actually lived according to our Christian privilege. Right? That they would see our good deeds and give glory to our Father who's in heaven. So let's stop living in terms of worldly privilege where we seek to earn glory through acts of service, but let us serve out of the glory that we have already received, which is ours in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Christ has served us so perfectly. God, we, we ask just for forgiveness for the ways that we have failed to recognize the station, the position, the privilege that we already have in Jesus. That we cannot earn any more favor with you than we have already received. And it's, it's grace because it's favor that is undeserved. And you give it freely. God, help us to walk in, and find our identity in that so that we might be freed up to love and, and, and serve other people. God, there are people right next to us who are hurting they're struggling. They're doubting. They're just dealing with, with the complexities and difficulties of life. And, and they really need somebody to come around them and love them and, and serve them in some really tangible ways. And so I pray that you would help us to see how we might do that. You've called us to this. You've called us to serve as Christ served. And God, we thank you that even in our failings, Christ is perfect. God, but we don't want to mar Christ's image. We want to reflect his glory. He died for us to free us from this foolish pursuit of ourselves. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to turn away from ourselves and seek to live for his glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen.